0: The concept that I, as a medical doctor, whether I'm a neurosurgeon, a psychiatrist, a neurologist, or whether I'm an audiologist or a psychologist, will be treating tinnitus patients by herself cannot work and will not work. And if we do not change, it will stay a problem forever. If we use the same technology and approach as they do in sports, high-tech sports, then there's no reason why we should not be able to conquer this problem within five to ten years.
1: Today I'm here with Dirk de Ritter. Uh, Dirk, welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Would you mind just briefly introducing yourself to our listeners?
0: Well, uh, I'm Dirk de Ritter. I was uh, born and raised in Belgium, uh, where I trained as a neurosurgeon to become interested in... um, brain surgery for um, tinnitus, which was part of my uh, PhD uh, project, which tried to develop surgical uh, brain surgery solutions for tinnitus. And then in uh, 2013, I moved to New Zealand, where I um, teach and do research not only related to tinnitus, but um, related to brain stimulation and brain modulation for a variety of um, pathologies, such as pain, um, obesity, addiction, uh, depression, etc. But my main um, research topic is still tinnitus. And since uh, a couple of years, I've also set up a clinic back in Belgium where whatever we develop as novel treatment modalities in New Zealand is then immediately translated to the clinic um, so that it's not just uh, sitting in an ivory tower and developing new uh, theoretical models and new treatments, but that um, those innovations are also immediately translated to a clinic.
1: Right, and I think we should probably talk a lot more about your your clinic and also how those other conditions that you've researched and are interested in like pain and depression might or might not be related to tinnitus um but but maybe first can you explain how how did you first get interested in tinnitus as a neurosurgeon i think that's interesting cuz there's quite a few neuroscientists who are studying tinnitus but neurosurgeon that's a very specific uh, specialty and I'm curious to hear how uh, that led you to become a tinnitus researcher.
0: Yes so um, unlike many other tinnitus uh, researchers I don't have tinnitus myself so it's not uh, a way to treat myself Um, but I got interested in tinnitus because my preferred surgery was microvascular decompression surgery, uh, which means that if there is a blood vessel uh, that taps on a nerve inside the brain, that can cause symptoms. And usually those um, symptoms such as pain or vertigo respond very well to that kind of surgery. And it happened to be my favorite kind of surgery. Um, And then when I thought, well, I would like to um, research and and start a PhD, then what is the worst outcome associated with this kind of surgery, which was tinnitus. And so the practical reason was that I thought I could make a difference by investigating how we could improve the surgical results of um, removing or detaching the nerve from the blood vessel from the auditory nerve and thereby improve the tinnitus. But consequently, because this is a very rare cause of tinnitus, I had to start uh, understanding the general mechanisms and pathophysiology behind tinnitus and that's how I rolled into researching tinnitus as um, as a whole and not just this one rare cause of um, of tinnitus that could be treated in a surgical way by my preferred kind of surgery.
1: What was it about tinnitus that sort of, I don't know, really piqued your interest?
0: From a brain perspective, my ultimate goal in life is to understand how the brain works. And tinnitus, um, for me, was similar to phantom pain. And phantom pain and phantom sound, from a purely theoretical perspective, Appeared uh, something that could be studied in a relatively easy way and uh, Being a little bit arrogant in the beginning of my studies I thought well we'll solve the problem within five years and then we'll study something else, but it has uh, uh, Shown to be a lot more uh, complicated than um, I ever imagined Uh, even though from a practical point of view the a phantom sound should be more easy to tackle than, for example, personality disorders or post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or other um, pathologies that we uh, encounter in clinical practice. Yet it has um, shown to be resilient to um, even aggressive treatments, which, as a as a neurosurgeon as a neurosurgeons, we tend to uh, sometimes propose. Uh, but that uh, being said, it uh, has helped tremendously in gaining a better and fuller understanding of how the brain functions. And so my m- main interest is the interaction between how the brain creates phantom sounds and phantom pain as a way to resolve inherent uncertainty in a changing environment. So it has it has grown into... Um, really into a quest of how the brain works and functions uh, within the environment that ultimately creates the brain.
1: Why do you think tinnitus has proven to be a more persistent problem than you had initially imagined?
0: I was trained in a very old fashioned way in which the brain was conceived of uh, a passive absorber of information from the environment that would process it in a specific place so in one spot in the brain would be responsible for one aspect so for example there would be only the auditory cortex that would generate tinnitus this was a very simple context uh, um, concept and then the solution is very simple you just suppress that overactivity in the auditory cortex and the problem is solved yet um we now know that there is Two problems with this um, approach. First of all, the brain is not phrenological, meaning the brain is not built in such a way that one symptom or one thought is created in only one spot of the brain, but that the brain um, ultimately creates emergent properties from networks. That being said, If you um, put all the pieces of a car together in a very specific way, you get a functioning car. If you don't put them together in a very specific way, so if you don't connect all those pieces of a car in a perfect way, then the car won't function, and it's the same in the brain. So tinnitus needs to be seen as an emergent property of connections between different parts of the brain, which is, of course, very more difficult to tackle than just one spot in the brain that generates tinnitus and the second problem with the way i was taught is that um the brain is not passive in absorbing sound information from the environment but the brain makes predictions and then actively goes and explores the environment for the predicted sound that being said if in the past for example you your brain has uh, processed always specific frequencies and because of hearing loss you don't uh, sense those frequencies anymore then the brain will say there's something wrong and we should be better saved than sorry so I will fill in the missing information from what is stored in memory um, related to this specific context and the problem is that the brain will generate the sound just to be on the safe side to reduce the uncertainty that is increased by not hearing that sound. And that means that it's the prediction error that creates the sound. So these are already two very different novel approaches to tinnitus that we were just not trained to, um, to take into account. And um, of course, these two... Aspects, first, the networks and the prediction that the brain does um, has revolutionized the way um, most neuroscientists now look at brain functioning. And because this is new, we had to completely rethink the way we approach tinnitus. This has made it very exciting, but also very frustrating because uh, we've tried many, many things based on the a wrong model basically just like at one stage in in history people thought the earth was the center of the universe and then Galileo said well I don't think that's correct it's the sun that's at the center well this uh, this new way of thinking about the brain is of the same difference as the geocentric and heliocentric approach to uh, the universe.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and I, I don't think many people realize just how fundamentally our understanding has of the brain has changed and evolved in the past few decades and and years even. Um, but, and I do, uh, I I still hear, you know, for understandable reasons, I, I you know hear other tinnitus patients say, "Well, can't they just find?" the part of the brain that causes the tinnitus and then you just like zap that part and (laughs) you know it's fixed so but what from what you just explained it's you know there's this whole new understanding that it's not the case that this part of the brain does this that part of the brain does that but it's much more uh complex interaction um uh, within and across brain networks, and that's uh, that's what makes it so complex, I suppose. And then I think the other aspect, and I'm really just trying to summarize it here for my own understanding as well, I think the other aspect you mentioned was that the brain is not a passive processing machine of the inputs um, that come to it, including aud- auditory inputs, um, but it... it uh, plays a much more active role in how those inputs sort of manifest because it makes predictions and those predictions draw on memory and 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 other things so am i sort of summarizing a little bit the challenges here uh from a lay perspective correctly
0: yes yes this is correct but it's also beautiful because this uh this creates uh, a completely new uh, way of not only looking at the brain, but also looking at the environment and looking at what's happening um, around us in the world. And it makes a lot of sense. Uh, From a practical point of view, it takes us about 300 milliseconds, let's say close to half a second, before um, a sensory stimulus is turned into a conscious percept if we would not predict what's going to happen, we would be running half a second behind in time, consciously, which is impossible to survive. I mean, we would run, every time we cross the street, we would be dead because the the car would be there. By the fact that we can predict the car will be at a certain spot when, if we make that step, that allows us to survive in in a changing environment. And so prediction is already embedded in the most basic um, living creatures. For example, bacteria can predict, not in one generation, they need 10 generations to be able to predict, but very simple um, cellular creatures like um, amoebae or the slime mold, which is a, a very intriguing creature where multiple cells, when the going gets tough, combine into one unit, they can predict already within one generation which means that this predictive capacity from an evolutionary point is essential in order to adapt to a changing environment because if you can predict what's going to be behind a rock that will whether it's uh, whether there will be a predator or uh, a partner to uh to mate with will uh, allow you both to survive longer but also to procreate so it's it's essential both for sen- for sexual and uh, natural selection it's a fundamental aspect of nature that um we have not really um used until relatively recently
1: so let, let's maybe take take a step back because uh, we've sort of uh dived into uh you know the this sort of tinnitus model and the, the, your your theory of, of how tinnitus uh, comes about uh, already. But let's maybe take a step back and uh, I'll ask you a very basic question about how tinnitus arises. Um, and that's the ear versus the brain uh, question, which I think, you know, again, there has been some evolution there over time in scientific understanding of uh, where tinnitus actually originates. But I still think there isn't consensus probably about this. Uh, And so I'm interested to hear, like, why do you emphasize the brain so much? And why do you see tinnitus primarily as a brain disorder, even in those many cases where it, it is caused by hearing loss or some kind of ear trauma,
0: well, this is a very good question because um, actually the uh, tinnitus has already been described in the um, Ebers papyrus, which goes back 3,000 years, and it was called um, a bewitched ear. So tinnitus was linked to the ear, and actually this continued until the 1990s where tinnitus was considered an ear problem. And then Jasterbof, um suggested that the brain was involved... Um, and but until 1999 so actually until 2000 tinnitus was considered an ear problem now if tinnitus is an ear problem then the solution is easy you wear a hearing aid and the tinnitus should improve which unfortunately is not the case only 20% of the people who wear in hearing aid um, do get better that being said if you if the the simple solution to the simple concept that tinnitus is an ear problem would be correct and everybody should improve. Therefore, we had to consider that there is an other um, aspect that is more uh, fundamental. And then an American, um, Colombian American neuroscientist and neurologist and zoologist, Rodolfo Linas, was the first to suggest or show using um, uh, uh, magnetoencephalography, basically recording magnetic activity in the brain, that the auditory cortex was involved in tinnitus. But that is only 20 years ago. And um, the essential component of that is that ultimately it is not the hearing loss that is important, but how the brain responds to the hearing loss. If the brain doesn't care that you have hearing loss. Basically, if the brain is certain enough that the missing information is not dangerous, then it won't create the sound. So, and that is a a very simple reason. If if the ear would be the cause for everybody, then everybody with hearing loss would have tinnitus, which is not the case. So from a very practical point of view, there were some problems with the theory that could not stand, very simple logic, and therefore, we had to find another explanation. And then, still in a very phrenological way, it was uh, shown by uh, Rodolfo Linus that the auditory cortex was involved, so we all thought, that's it. We just have to, like you said earlier on, zap the auditory cortex and we will quiet the tinnitus, which is what we did in the beginning, and with some success, some people benefit, but not everybody. And then the question is: Okay, well, if not everybody responds, then we have to redefine the theory again. We have to um, not uh, we have if we can't explain um, Tinnitus improvement or rather failure by zapping the auditory cortex, then we have to find another um, explanation. And that um, then um, a young uh, German. A uh, researcher, Winnie Schley said, well, maybe we should just consider it as a network rather than um, a phrenological auditory cortex problem. But that was only in 2009, meaning that's very recent. So this then created another approach where we said, well, we should not just tap or zap the auditory cortex, but we should maybe combine it with Uh, stimulating other parts of the network and we knew that the frontal cortex was involved so we started stimulating the frontal cortex and the auditory cortex which was a little bit better than the um than the auditory cortex all by itself but still it was not good enough meaning the theory is still not optimal and that's when Rauschecker then um a year later said well if that doesn't explain it i have i have the solution it's not the input that's the problem, it's that the brain doesn't suppress it. It's a problem of the break on sound, um, and therefore the uh, target again changed. So our treatments were always adjusted to the new theory. The problem was that didn't work either. So we had to come up with yet another theory, which was then um, the the Bayesian brain concept, which was a predictive model, but that hasn't really led to any practical approach and um, we now just published a paper that says, well, maybe it's both. Maybe it's not just a lack. Uh, it's maybe not too much input that the brain creates, but it's the balance between how much the brake works and how much the accelerator works. And that still creates novel treatment approaches, meaning that you have to compute the balance in the brain using imaging and then say, well, we have to um, uh, press a little bit um on the the brake and let the accelerator go a little bit. And that's very different than, again, one uh, approach. So basically, we learn through our failures of treatments. And so the theoretical model of how tinnitus evolves in time um, is rapidly accelerating through all our failures. Um, And this coincides with uh, this novel understanding of the brain functioning in general that we discussed earlier on and this is why uh, we see new treatments um, develop um, associated with new theoretical models so from this point of view i to be honest i don't care which model is uh, the right model the right model is the one that works the one that will lead us to find a cure for tinnitus and that will be the correct model and all the models that we have developed in the meantime are just little stepping stones towards what you could call a unified model, just like the physicists are looking uh, for the theory of everything. um, We should be ambitious enough to look for a theory of everything in the tinnitus domain so that we do not only treat the tinnitus distress or the, the, the bother of the tinnitus but really get rid of the sound itself.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Where do you think we are now in that journey towards a unified theory because I think there's still a number of different theories out there. I think they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, so you also just talked about how, you know, two different theories and both could be true at the same time or something like that. But what's your assessment of, of where we are now and um, can you talk a little bit about the prominent uh, central gain theory? I think there's it's actually a group of related theories, right? But what I think they have in common is that uh, it's based on the presumption that when there's a loss of input, that somewhere along the auditory pathway, I think in the lower brain regions, I'm not sure, to compensate for the loss of input, the the gain or volume dial is sort of turned up. To, to compensate. Uh, how do you look at that theory? Is it compatible with how you see tinnitus or, or not?
0: Yes. So basically, there is two big theories now. One says tinnitus is uh, due to auditory deaffrontation, meaning there is not enough input in the brain and the brain makes what is not coming in. That's one big theory. And the other big theory is the the Rauschecker model of the deficient noise cancellation. So one says um, the brain creates too much noise, and the other one says the brake doesn't work. Now, the gain theory is just one aspect of the the deaffrontation model where um, the claim is that, well, if you don't hear very well, the brain will just make um, the auditory system more sensitive to input so that it can still pick up as much information as possible from the degraded or lacking auditory information. Now, from a practical point of view, this is a very engineering approach to a problem that is fundamentally just an explanation of of how in auditory information the gain should uh, increase. Now, if the gain increases in every patient, then you would expect every patient to have hyperacusis, meaning hypersensitivity to sounds, which is not the case, meaning that the gain theory cannot be a unifying theory because otherwise it, it should increase every um, every um, sound input and then everybody should have, have hyperacusis. So that is not a fundamental theory in my mind. It's It's very valuable because we know that you can modify gain in the brain for example, by applying um, noise. So if you apply noise, you can, uh, and that's the beauty of of electrical noise is that it can normalize both a decreased gain and an increased gain to normal um, features. So the theory certainly has a lot of value because it makes a couple of predictions that lead to theoretical new treatment possibilities. But it is, philosophically not fundamental it's more an engineering approach to um, to what we know is happening when there is less information coming into the brain
1: so what's the missing missing piece here you said gain doesn't doesn't explain everything what's the missing piece in your view
0: i think the missing piece is that um, a lot of how we develop theories about the brain in involvement in tinnitus is based on still some static models, even though they're network models. Now, the brain is constantly changing. So the way we analyze data is we put somebody in a scanner, whether it's an fMRI scanner or it's an uh, MEG or an EEG, doesn't really matter. We average data over five minutes or 10 minutes, and then we say that's the network. Now, this, of course, is linked to the methodology um but it's a, it's a tremendous weakness because our brain constantly changes and so um, a couple of um of years ago about three four years ago um anusha mohan who works um, in san vanessa's groups showed actually that the network is dynamically changing and interestingly that um the auditory network is constantly on the look for information so its flexibility is increased which we thought was actually going to be the opposite we predicted the opposite we thought well you somebody hears beep all the time so that means there is no change so the auditory cortex should be very non-changing well the, the, sh- the data showed exactly the opposite which of course is in keeping with the, with the Bayesian brain model, the predictive theory that when there is not enough information, the brain just goes and looks for information everywhere else in the brain. And if it can't find it from the outside, then it will just pull it from memory. So that was interesting. And the second mistake in our predictions we made was that we predicted that the distress would be associated with with um, the brain being very on the lookout for. But it was the opposite. Actually, the distress is caused by the fact that the uh, the brain focuses only on the sound. And so thereby is uh, not processing other relevant, uh, behaviorally relevant information. And by this zooming in or this focusing on the sound, that leads to the distress. So this dynamic changes, of course, we would we have to take into account when we develop new treatments now then the question is why does somebody why does somebody's brain change into a tinnitus network and somebody else who has exactly the same hearing loss not this is a fundamental question that we have not been able uh, to unravel we um um, Jay uh, Song in Korea has uh, very recently shown beautiful data that shows that the posterior singlet is involved. And this is, uh, this is very relevant because the posterior singlet is a part of the brain, part of your self-perceptional network that relates yourself to the outside world. Um, so from a practical point of view, if your brain, um, and he's also using some other... Uh, models where he's looking at entropy, meaning a lack of information, uh, what the brain does with a lack of information. And if you conceptualize his data, basically what it means is if, if the brain doesn't care that there is a lack of information, you won't get tinnitus. If the brain says this lack of information is important, then that will uh, generate tinnitus now why would the lack of information be important or not that depends on the context for example if you've been tortured sound during torture is extremely important and so that everybody who's tortured with sound will develop tinnitus because it is be, uh, in the context the uh, it, the sound is very relevant Whereas if you would develop tinnitus in a nice environment, let's say you go to a concert, for most patients it will disappear because it was linked to something pleasant. Well, if you like the concert, of course, and um, then that will not uh, generate a tinnitus. That being said, if you develop tinnitus while you're in a divorce or while you lose your job or in in a period of COVID like now, the chances that it that your brain will say this is important is higher and therefore it cannot ignore it because the brain just says well it must be important because it happened in this context and so whenever you get into the same context that causes a problem then the question is but why does that not happen with everybody and so you can push the boundaries and then the then you have to start looking at something that has not been looked at in tinnitus whatsoever, and that is epigenetics. Epigenetics means that you've got your genes, and we know there are certain genes that are involved in the generation of tinnitus. Those genes are, interestingly, the same that are uh, involved in pain, depression, uh, sleep problems, uh, hearing loss, so um, associated comorbidities of tinnitus which means that also it, if there is a, uh, those genes are involved, the question of course is um, how much does everybody with those same gene problems, or polymorphism, so the variants of specific genes can lead to tinnitus. No, only 6% of those who have those genes develop tinnitus. And so you can then again push the question one step further, why does not everybody with those genes develop tinnitus? And that's where epigenetics becomes involved. Epigenetics is basically um, um, an influence on how your genes... Are activated or not activated and this depends on the environment so for example if you um, are very stressed or if you've been abused as a child or if you have a physical trauma or a, or a mental trauma that will create physical changes on your DNA the DNA itself doesn't change but you add specific groups uh, chemical groups on the DNA so that basically your DNA is ready to respond very quickly if the same situations occurs again so it's a way of preparing your uh, dna to respond to that stimulus so which means that if um you, this the, the dna is ready to respond to put it very simple to create a network that generates tinnitus then uh, those epigenetic factors meaning the same stress as you've had before um will again reinforce the brain saying yeah it is important and then the problem is it becomes chronic but then the question is how does it become chronic and the chronicity is what we can then learn from other pathologies like depression like uh, anxiety alzheimer's disease chronic pain seems to be related to um, a low-grade neuroinflammation so low-grade inflammation of not just the Auditory network, but also the stress or suffering network. So when they become chronically inflamed that seems to lead to a chronification and then it's unsurprising that the genetic and the epigenetic factors are also involved in those um, uh, the in those products that are creating neuroinflammation and information transmission. So from a very practical point of view, there's two components. You've got your genes and you've got the environment. The environment changes the way how your genes are expressed and that's why not everybody with the same risk genes will develop tinnitus. If you have risk genes, then what what will happen is that um, you're likely to get tinnitus from the first hit if you don't have risk genes then you can have what is these epigenetic modifications meaning that normal genes can be expressed in a different way and then if you have a second hit that can lead to um, tinnitus so from a practical point of view what we have to do is we um, should bring all that information together meaning the brain network, the genes, the environmental influences. And this creates patterns that we cannot, as a human, unravel. And that's why we ultimately will need artificial intelligence to help us with this um, with this problem. And this is what we are currently trying to do, is see, can artificial intelligence help to unravel the patterns uh, or the links Uh, between genes, uh, epigenetics, uh, which which ultimately is a change by the environment, to explain why there is such a variety in the imaging data or the brain expression or the brain networks that we link to tinnitus. And uh, so the model becomes even more complicated, but is addressable by um, using ultimately artificial intelligence the um, the pattern recognitions that we as humans unfortunately cannot find ourselves this is where in the future um, we will need large groups of people to collaborate meaning creating european projects um, um, american asian projects that uh, look at data of maybe one thousand two thousand tinnitus patients have their complete genome sequence, to have their epigenome sequence, to have their microbiome sequence, to have the EEG data, and then apply all uh, the uh, pattern recognition of the um, artificial intelligence to ultimately tell us for this patient, for example, um, these three signal molecules in the brain are not optimal, so that we can supplement them. And for this patient, actually these connections are not optimal um, so that we can rebuild those connections or break those connections. And the beauty is that in the last couple of years, um, new tools have been developed where we can try to rebuild connections and try to break connections. Whereas before, because our model was wrong We were just saying, okay, well, this part of the brain, meaning the auditory cortex is overactive, so we just have to suppress it. That's it. That's a very simple approach. But we did not have the technology to target different parts of the brain at the same time. Now um, the technology exists, but it's not yet used. It's still in an experimental phase to see, are we truly rebuilding connections or are we truly breaking connections? Once we know we can, then it's just applying the changes that the artificial intelligence will tell us that that are typical for tinnitus, basically the signature of tinnitus. And so I do think that um, through technology, we're actually going to be able to individualize the treatments that that we currently use. Uh, It will take a little bit. It will take five to ten more years, but that is just uh, a a matter of... um, of scaling up what we're currently doing so the the theoretical models are being are currently being built and um, the technology is being simultaneously developed um so it's just a matter of bringing those things together but everybody will have to collaborate and um we will need one or two people to organize the collaboration, um, call them team leaders, whatever you want, um, that also know the clinical component of it. But the concept that I, as a medical doctor, whether I'm a neurosurgeon, a psychiatrist, a neurologist, or whether I'm a, a an audiologist or a psychologist, will be treating tinnitus patients by herself, cannot work and will not work and if we do not change it will stay a problem forever if we use the same technology and approach as they do in sports high tech sports then there's no reason why we should not be able to conquer this problem within 5 to 10 years
1: i think that's a very strong and inspirational call to action and I really couldn't agree more. Of course, I'm a relative outsider, but I talk to a lot of tinnitus researchers and my impression is always that it is very fragmented what is happening currently. And often people don't even know about other people's research when I ask about it. Uh, And I completely agree that what we need is kind of a big unifying project uh with a few people really leading the way there has to be a vision like we're gonna solve this problem in x number of years this is what it's gonna take it has to be very multidisciplinary, and there has to be a large-scale data gathering and then as you point out with very sophisticated data processing capabilities with artificial intelligence and yeah i would love to see that happen um how do we make that happen, Derek? What well, do you think? I
0: actually proposed that, um, you know, the America's Cup uh, and the sail race is um, run by, um, by private people, a cop- couple of billionaires who um, spend loads of money on, um, on creating those uh, extremely highly technological and highly sophisticated uh, boats. But not only the boats are sophisticated, in Team New Zealand, there is, I think, 12 Olympic medalists. So also the people that run the boats are extremely highly advanced. Now, I've written a, a little um, text on the on the uh, TRI, so the Tinnitus Research Initiative website, where I suggest, well, actually what we need is the same thing. We need a competition where um, teams are formed and they have to build a treatment within a certain time frame, just like there is at that day, there is the sail race. And at that time, you have to have your product. And then it's just a competition of who builds the treatment that can benefit most people or that can um, reduce the sound most in most people. Of course, you can say, well, there is ethical problems there because you, how are you going to test it on 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 humans? And how are you going to test it on... Um, um, Well, you can. That's why we have ethical committees. That's why we have um, and there is no reason why, just like the America's Cup normally is um, held every four years, uh, or like the Olympic Games, why we should not be able to create a competition of building the best uh, treatment, whichever treatment it is, um, that, um, that works. But if you do that you have to create it just like like the america's cup or like the olympic games you say okay well there is a competition for neuromodulation devices you build a neuromodulation device specifically for tinnitus the problem is that we need the budgets you need a large budget to um, develop what is required in order to be able to treat it but from a Conceptual point of view, there is no reason why that would not be possible. If you if you have um, a group of of my, uh, microbiologists geneticists, um, um, people specialized in neuroinflammation, imaging people, uh, artificial intelligence people, and you force them to work together, just like they do in in um, in team new zealand you force them to work together for a common goal with a deadline in a competition then that should at least result in drum in a lot of innovative approaches because the competition will drive the people to um to come up with solutions that nobody held nobody else has um has thought of so the, now our problem is um, I have a very comfortable life where, where if I develop something new now or within five years, nobody cares. I'm, I still get my salary as an academic. Um, if there is no pressure, no deadlines, no competition, then we will move too slowly. So I think creating a little bit of competition would be uh, highly beneficial
1: maybe we can call on the tri for that
0: (laughs) well i think we first need to call on some um on some uh, millionaires or billionaires to to uh, create um, a competition where um, they could maybe even see the benefit of a commercial product whatever because it has to be a win-win situation just like uh, developing a um, and if you and if you do this for tinnitus, um, there is no reason why you could not do that for other uh, medical problems as well.
1: Yeah, um, yes, I, I'm I'm going to think hard about how we can push for this because this is an excellent idea. Uh, but I want to I want to ask still a few follow up questions regarding the pathophysiology of tinnitus, and then I want to move on to. More clinical applications, and talk a bit more about your experience uh, working directly with patients. Um, but on the on the pathophysiology and um, and the brain networks, um, I watched a, a YouTube uh, lecture of yours where you talk about how when tinnitus suffering is maintained for a longer time, it becomes ingrained in a in a different part of the brain. I think it was the default mode network that you were referring to which deals with self-reflection amongst other things and in your words then tinnitus becomes a part of who you are that's that's how you phrased it and you said it then becomes harder to treat so we actually got a question from a listener uh, about this Uh, uh, they wanted to know what you mean by that like how how long does this process take and uh, and uh, why is it then harder to treat?
0: This is still a theoretical model, but we're looking now at imaging data to see if, if, if this can be supported or not. So the concept is that for your brain, um, if you have pain or tinnitus, which is maintained for a while, that costs energy because the 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 suffering activates normally a sympathetic nervous system which is your fight and flight mode that generates energy about 30 percent more energy consumption than normally which is dramatic now biologically we are built to to have as little energy consumption as possible because that's good for survival if there is not a lot of food around then if you don't consume a lot it's beneficial so what the brain then does is, well, if I make this suffering of tinnitus the norm, the reference, then I don't have to fight, then I don't have to create the extra sympathetic activity anymore, um, the create the extra energy um, as a response. So the only way it can do that is by integrating the sound into your self-perceptional network. So the sound becomes part of your self-perceptional network. And this makes very clear predictions because the self perceptual network has been defined as overlaps with the default mode network which is a network which is active in your brain when your mind wandering etc that predicts that the longer you have tinnitus the stronger the connection becomes between your auditory cortex and your default mode network and this is exactly what uh, j song in korea has shown that the posterior cingulate cortex which is the main hub the central core of this self-representational network becomes linked to the auditory cortex and the parahippocampus, meaning to the auditory memory and the auditory cortex. Now, if this is correct, then what it means is that you first have to detach those connections again. You have to um, break the sound generated by the memory. Parahippocampus, auditory cortex, uh, 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 PCC, with whatever way you can. So we're currently doing studies now in New Zealand to see if we can break these connections with specific stimulation designs and medication. So, for example, we know that certain psychedelics, uh, whether it's or um, um, hallucinogenics like ketamine and MDMA can break those connections specifically within the default mode network within our self-representation network. That's also of course why if you have a psychedelic experience you have the feeling that you're not in your body anymore, that um that everything is changing, that's because you have no reference which is yourself. Yeah,
1: you can even lose your sense of self entirely in in such an experience, yes. which I think and is so, fascinating.
0: So what we're currently trying is and first of all, dissolve the self by psychedelics and then Um, and then try to um, rebuild it without those abnormal connections. So that being said, what it means is that the model, the theoretical model, again, creates the the theory, um, uh, the theoretical therapies, um, the therapies linked to the tears. So from a practical point of view, if this, model is correct that the sound becomes part of who you are we have to dissolve who you are you can do that with psychedelics then you have to detach the sound network meaning the the auditory cortex parahippocampus from the self which you can do by by creating a noisy stimulation design so that they can't synchronize if that works then um that should be beneficial but then you should still try to prevent this from reoccurring, because if you have hearing loss, your brain might again try and do that. And that's why then, for example, you might need uh, hearing aids not to treat the tinnitus, but to prevent it from reoccurring. Uh, Or you might um, uh, do mindfulness or whatever therapy that teaches your brain to basically say, look, the, the lack of auditory input is not important because then you should not develop the tinnitus again. So what it means is that if the tinnitus becomes part of who you are, you have to just take another treatment approach. But it's doable. It's just, it it creates a little, it makes it just uh, a little more um, complex. And it also means that you might have to work in different phases rather than what we do now. Now we still think, well, we have to treat it all at once. In the the future, probably that won't happen. In the future, we will think, okay, well, if this is correct, then we have to first detach the sound from the self. Then we have to um, uh, detach the sound from the suffering, which is still another network. Um, And then we have to ultimately prevent it from reoccurring. And that being said, that will be two or three different sequential treatments rather than the one the magic pill or the one approach that reads everything it it does take um a, a different approach but it is all it's all doable because we 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 better understand those networks and those connections and we know which medications can work on which of these components
1: I would love to talk for another hour about this and particularly psychedelics, because I find that a fascinating topic, but but I want to make sure we also get to talk a bit more about your clinical uh, work. Um, so you founded or co-founded a, a clinic called uh, Brain, and I don't know how to pronounce it because there's like a three in front of the n, but I don't know how you say that, Um uh, and I think before it used to be a two uh, yes. so uh, yeah can you tell us a bit about uh, how that came about uh, and, um, and, and and what you do in your clinic
0: so basically brain um, with the three so stands for brain uh, research consortium for advanced, International Innovative and Interdisciplinary Neuromodulation. It's a lot of words, but basically what it says is, is that we created a clinic uh, predominantly using neuromodulation, so brain stimulation, brain training, that is, uh, tries to be innovative and interdisciplinary. That was brain two. When I moved to um, to New Zealand and Sven Van Neste, uh, my long-term collaborator, moved to a university in the United States, and Jay uh, Sung, who um, who uh, was a collaborator, uh, moved to uh, Korea. Then we said, well, actually, now we're international. So we added the international and the a third I, so international, innovative, interdisciplinary, and that's what the three stands for. So that's how BRAIN2, which was folk, local in Belgium, actually became BRAIN3. And so it's a collaborative effort, and now last year... Uh, the university of bonn also joined it and why is this important um it is important because we all use the same technology we all use the same um, methods of investigation which means that we can pull the data together and uh, also compare so if if uh, um, somebody in korea finds something then we can test it because we use the same tools and technology quickly um, in New Zealand, or in Belgium, or, um, or in Germany, and each subunit has a specialty. Um, so, um, in, in New, uh, New Zealand we do, for example, animal research as well as uh, multifocal electrical stimulation research. In um, in Bonn, we will do uh, invasive operative uh, research as well as a focused ultrasound, uh, because there's only two of those devices in in Germany and none in Belgium and none in New Zealand and none anywhere else. So um, and then in um, in the U.S. and in Ireland, it is more focused on uh, the cognitive uh involvement in tinnitus, how the tinnitus can result in in um thinking problems and concentration and memory problems, etc. So every sub-unit is has a subspecialty, but they're all research units. And Ghent, the brain clinic in Ghent, just pulls the information from all these research units and tries to translate it as quickly as possible uh, to the clinic but only uh, basically once we have gathered evidence that it is beneficial so um, but the beauty is that we can do that before it gets published because sometimes it takes a year before something gets published so once we have the uh, let's say the statistical evidence that this approach benefits at least a group of uh, patients then it is uh, justifiable to you to translate it um, to the clinic, and this is where um, the clinic in 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 Belgium is um, trying to then uh, also see. Well, it's not because it worked in New Zealand or it worked in uh, in the U.S. or it worked in uh, Ireland that it by definition will also work here. So the 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 goal is then to uh, constantly evaluate whether what came out of research, actually also is clinically beneficial. And this is a little bit of um, of of a a practical problem in the sense of how fast do you translate research data into a clinic? Some people will say, well, you should at least have three, four, five studies that confirm before you apply it to the clinic. Um, Other people uh, will say, no, if you have one, study that is well done well controlled you can immediately apply it to the clinic and there is um people are in favor of either there's a more conservative approach and there is the more um proactive um approach and there is no gold standard for it so it really depends on also on the on the patient's personality some people will say no no just stay conservative and others will say i need um, i i i'm willing for a a more uh, proactive even if there's only one study that's fine i'm i'm ready with this so uh but it is it is a little bit more difficult than just having a clinic where you do routine treatments Um, and also it can be sometimes confusing for patients when they come in and then half a year later we say well actually based on the studies that we've now done this might actually be better so uh, and that can come across as if we have no clue what we're doing because we're changing constantly and we are changing based on constant better understanding of the pathophysiology of uh, the treatments Uh, of tinnitus and the associated um, innovative treatments and because uh, things move relatively fast now both technology technology wise and um, understanding of the pathophysiology i already know now what we're currently doing will be different from what we're doing within six months or a year but that's the way it it goes and i think it's only to the benefit of um, of the patients that um we do not only have a hammer env- anymore because if you only have a hammer everything looks like a nail and then everybody gets the same treatment and it doesn't work for everybody
1: yeah yeah but that and that's science right it's a continuous progression of of knowledge and i would say the the patient sh- is should be the key part in all of this like you said uh as long as they understand that certain treatments are experimental I don't know if that's the right word to use but if they understand that it's still early stages and they are fully informed about potential risks etc I I think that's the the most important uh, aspect of it Um, but yeah I can see how that sort of continuously poses some some challenges Um, I'd love to hear more about your personal experiences working directly with tinnitus patients and um How do you go about making an an initial assessment of of someone's issues?
0: The way we approach uh, a patient is uh, if we can find a cause, we will try to treat the cause because that is still the the most logical thing to do. Um, Unfortunately, many times we won't be able to find a cause and then you try to treat it In a, in a stepwise approach. So, for example, if somebody has a hearing loss, then we will suggest to first try, if they haven't tried it yet, a hearing aid. Even though, if you look at meta-analytic data, hearing aids don't work. I mean, that's that. that's if you pull all the data together from all the studies that have been done on hearing aids, it clearly shows it does not work. But this is, Irrelevant to uh, the patient. What I mean by that is, for 20% of the patients, hearing aids work wonderfully well. But because of statistics, if you pull, if you put all the patients together, those 20% are not powerful enough statistically to give for the whole group a benefit. So then the the combined group will say, well, it doesn't work. And indeed, it doesn't work for the whole group, but it does work very well for a small subgroup. And so that being said, if you tell them, look, you have about 20% chance that you will really benefit from it, it's worthwhile to try a hearing aid. If the hearing aid does uh, does work, um, then that's fine. If the patient has associated suffering and this is mostly the reason why they come because if you don't suffer from the tinnitus you won't go and seek for help then we will um often uh propose either medication just to treat the suffering like uh, uh, because suffering can be expressed in different ways you can be it can cause anger fear um, anxiety depression um, a lot of associated um uh, Symptoms. Then we we will try to treat those, because if somebody is severely depressed or highly anxious, you cannot treat the sound component at all, because the the brain is so focused on the sound component um, that it will ultimately it does not make even sense to try and treat the sound. You have to treat the depression or the anxiety or the OCD-like behavior before you can treat the sound component. So then we first treat, uh, so that's the second step. If um, the medication doesn't work or if the person says, look, I I don't like medication, I want a non-medical approach, then we will use um, in those patients neuromodulation for um, the suffering which means that we will use transcranial magnetic stimulation for which there is plenty of evidence that it can treat depression well, equally well as medication or even better uh, for anxiety. Um, If it is not severe, but it is still um, causing some suffering, then we might use um, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, uh, which is an electrical form, but it's, it's somewhat easier. And it's also not every day. It's only two or three times a week. So it's a little bit easier. Um, and if that um, if that does not work um, or if that does not benefit, then um, we will um, basically um, suggest the patients that, well, we have recently done this research and in this research, this has shown, but there is no hard evidence except for what we've done or what one group has done that this might benefit you for example whether that is acupuncture or whether that is it doesn't really matter as long as there is evidence that it has benefited a subgroup of patients then um, there is the op there is the options of uh, doing those um, those approaches so basically it goes from standardized uh, approaches to more, Aggressive or more invasive approaches, but we start with the most easy, simple things, um, because it does not make any sense that I would use transcranial magnetic stimulation on somebody's brain if it's just an ear uh, wax in the ear. I mean, you start with the basics and you just build up based on what you what you find as um, what does not work basically, and so it's a it's a stepwise approach. Um, that unfortunately does still not benefit probably 20 to 30 percent of patients who have no benefit. Sixty to 70 percent of the patients might have a benefit, especially on the suffering. The sound treating the sound component is still very, very difficult, and this is where most of our research is still going on now because the ultimate goal should be to create silence not just to treat the suffering treating the suffering is uh, is an intermediate acceptable goal because if you don't suffer from it and you can live a normal life that's fine but the goal should be to create silence
1: I would agree but I'm curious to hear more about why you think that's the case because um, you know if you talk to uh, a uh, let's say CBT practitioner who treats tinnitus patients—they're likely to say, "Well, if we can remove the distress through uh, therapy, then that is as good as a cure, right?" So I, th- I think it—it it really matters who you ask and what what professional lens you're looking through. And this is quite a controversial topic. It's—it's it's kind of no matter what you say about it, you're gonna sort of make someone someone upset. But I I, I agree that just removing the distress is not enough. And one of the reasons I think that's the case is because we can't remove the distress for everyone, right? There's going to be like a group of patients for whom...
0: And and, uh, because you mentioned CBT, there is a lot of evidence, even meta-analytic evidence, uh, that shows that CBT is beneficial for tinnitus. But like you say, it's for distress. It doesn't do anything on the sound. But if you look at the data... It's statistically significant, but is it clinically very relevant? Because ultimately with CBT at a meta-analytic level, the patient has 10 points benefit on a TFI score, basically 10% benefit. Now, if you just put it in numbers and you and your suffering is 80%, you go from 80% to 70%. I don't know if that's clinically beneficial the, because after one week, The patient will say, well, yeah, maybe I'm better, but I'm still suffering 70 out of 100 instead of 80 out of 100, and that 70 will become the new 80. So I don't think that we can claim that there is any treatment out there that truly works. It's statistically significant, but most, even those for which there is meta-analytic evidence like CBT, only improve the patients by 10%. That's not good enough. And just saying, well, we can treat them, we can cure them by giving them a 10% improvement is really not putting the barrier high enough to come up with new treatments. And if we, we as clinicians are not our biggest critics ourselves, and if we get satisfied with our results, there will be no advance anymore. As long if the goal is not to create silence, then we should do something else. Then we should just say, well, we're not a tinnitus specialist. You might be a psychologist or a psychiatrist and that's fine. If your goal is to treat the suffering, then you should say, I'm not a tinnitus specialist. I'm a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I treat suffering, mental suffering. If you claim to be a tinnitus clinician, then the goal should be to create silence. Otherwise, um, there is no ban- there is no reason why you should call yourself a tentative specialist.
1: Yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree. I'm I'm curious to hear a bit more of what you said earlier, um that you can't proceed with more uh sophisticated treatments until you reduce the distress or anxiety and that, that you uh believe prescribing um, medications for that can be a good uh, good step I know as you pointed out some people are hesitant also to take those anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications particularly long term Um, what's your view on that do you really see it as just uh, some a short-term measure just to sort of break the cycle and be able to intervene more effectively or could it be used longer term as well
0: Yes, I think it can be used longer term, but you have to be careful in the sense that, um, for example, SSRIs, which are very often prescribed for tinnitus, actually can worsen the tinnitus. They can improve the suffering, but they can worsen the tinnitus. So then the question is, what are you really doing? Um, So... A lot of antidepressant medications actually, as a side effect, have that you, they can generate or worsen the tinnitus which is present, and so then you create a vicious circle where you have to keep on adding uh, medication, which worsens the tinnitus, which can then. Uh, so that's not that's not a good option. But there is a couple of um, of uh, medications that that can be taken. But like everything, the goal is to. Um, Treat the tinnitus for at least two to three months because that's more or less, to put it simple, how long it takes your brain to rewire a little bit. So from a practical point of view, after three months, you try to taper if it it has a beneficial effect. If it has a beneficial effect, after three months, you try to taper the medication to the lowest dose that gives a benefit. Ideally, no medication, but if you can't, then you can then you can take the medication, and this is a, a, a new approach that I would not have done a couple of years ago, but is putting more responsibility in the patient's hands. So for example, this you can say taper it down, but if you feel, you get anxious again or you start feeling depressed, take it for a couple of days and then again, you stop so that you can tailor it to the need, of your brain, basically, rather than enforcing a a status quo. And the reason why you would prefer that to um, giving a constant medication is because if you give constant medication, your brain will adjust to it. And um, if your brain adjusts to it, then it just kind of ignores the medication and then it has no benefit. So you want to also... um, minimize, but not stop if it's needed. And if they have to take it there for the rest of their lives, they have to take it for the rest of their lives. But at the minimum dose, that gives them a clinical benefit. And why would you do that? Well, for example, as I mentioned, um, people with neuroticism uh, have the same genes as people with tinnitus and people with pain. Neuroticism is one of the characteristics that drives uh, or that creates a higher likelihood that if you have tinnitus it will become chronic now what does it mean it just means that those people with neuroticism are um, less stress sensitive or more stress sensitive or less resilient and therefore they will start suffering more than anybody else it's not it's not that they are weaker it's not that they are mentally weak it's just the way their brain is wired that they will start suffering quicker so you can then stop the medication, but you know on beforehand that the person like that will, within three months, be back at full scale where he started, which does not make any sense. So then you, ha- you, you might have to take it for the rest of your life. Whereas if you are, um, let's say, a, um, a, a person with, uh, you're a musician, They're hyper focused on their sound. Often, it's very disturbing for musicians. But it depends on the kind of musician. If you're a classical uh, musician and you're obsessively focusing on on uh, the purity of of the sound, then the interference is a problem. However, sixty percent of rock musicians have tinnitus, but it's rare that it bothers them because it's part of yeah, well they played when they were young without any hearing protection and it's part of it but actually it's linked to something positive to the fun they had on the on the stage and therefore it does not seem to bother those rock musicians as much as it uh, would bother a classical musician a violinist who who um who strives for the purity of 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 one stroke uh, because there it will interfere with, the, and it will be perceived as something very negative. So in those two people, two kinds of musicians, your treatment will be different. And in one, if the if the rock musician has a problem, he might just need a very short treatment uh, for whatever causes a worsening of the tinnitus, let's say getting divorced or... Um, or whatever, then you treat that and then afterwards they are fine. Whereas if you have an, um, a classical violinist who has some OCD-like features, you know he will have to take or she will have to take medication for the rest of her life. So I'm not in favor and not against anything. It just depends on what's necessary.
1: Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you, you next mentioned, I think, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And I think you previously said that this gives positive results to only about 20 or 30% of patients, but maybe that was a few years ago. Do you still believe this to be the case and, and how can we improve those numbers?
0: Initially, we were using transcranial magnetic stimulation on the auditory cortex. As you mentioned earlier on, we zapped the auditory cortex because we thought that's where the problem is we quickly realized it did not work. And in the beginning, there was heated discussions where whether you should go contralateral to the side of the tinnitus or always on the left side. But the fights we were having were useless because they were missing the entire point that it was not a good treatment for tinnitus. So um, now we use transcranial magnetic stimulation not to treat the sound, but to treat the associated depression and anxiety, which you see in about 20% of the patients, so and especially those who come to the clinic, because they suffer. So if they have um, a, a clear-cut anxiety and depression, and we, we define that based on questionnaires and on the psychiatrist who works in, in the group and a psychologist who works in the group, if they have a clear-cut depression, we will treat them with transcranial magnetic stimulation if medication in itself does not work, but often we use a combination because it has been shown, for example, that if you combine transcranial magnetic stimulation with medication that the benefit is bigger than medication alone or uh, stimulation alone. So we we use the combination to treat first the depression and then it depends if the patient then says, look, I can now live with the tinnitus, there is nothing else, there is nothing else, sorry. So um, so we often combine transcranial magnetic stimulation with um, medication because it has shown that medication plus uh, magnetic stimulation works better than medication alone or stimulation alone. If after this treatment the patient says, well, now I can perfectly well live with it, um, this is fine then there's nothing else that needs to be done. But we don't stop all at once. We taper um, the stimulation. So instead of doing everyday stimulation, we go to um, once every two days, then once a week, then still once every two weeks, just to not stop the treatment all at once. This, um, so we, But we don't target the auditory cortex anymore. And it, uh, even though in some patients, it might still have a little bit of benefit for the sound component, we're now currently focusing more on multi, uh, uh, multi-target stimulation to break the network um, in order to truly make a difference. This is still experimental, um, so we're not using it yet in the clinic, but Those studies should be finished in six months, and maybe in six months we will use that in the clinic. So, yes, we still use magnetic stimulation, but for the anxiety and the depression, because most studies actually do show that for the sound component, it is not sufficiently beneficial. It's very costly, it's not reimbursed, and therefore, the chances that somebody benefits from it are... um, in a cost-benefit analysis, not high enough uh, to uh, warrant its routine use in clinical practice.
1: Right, right. So currently what you can offer is mostly treatments to target the distress and the, the treatments to target the tinnitus itself are, that that's why you're doing the research, basically. that's That's still under development. Yes. Yeah, okay. What's your Opinion on um, some of those bimodal neuromodulation devices that, that are out there. There's the Lanier device. Uh, there's Dr. Susan Shore working on a, a similar type of device. Do you think those also only target the distress or do you think they have uh, uh, are effective enough?
0: Yes, they only tr- uh, treat the distress, even though the claims will be different. And the reason is very simple. If you treat the distress the sound will also de- decrease a little bit because what the distress does is if, if for your brain, well, stress is a mechanism in which your brain says everything is important. Now, if everything is important, the gain will will change. So basically a sound will become heightened in its experience. The pain will become worse. The, 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 the tinnitus will become louder. So if you treat the distress, Secondarily to that, the the loudness will decrease a little bit. It won't disappear, but it will decrease a little bit because the gain is normalized. Now, that being said, the concept in itself is is not abnormal because how does the brain function in daily life? In daily life, what the brain does, um, if you talk to somebody, you will not just listen, but everybody will lip read. And based on your lip reading and the sound, your brain will say, well, that's the word that was mentioned. So it our brain constantly uses what is called abductive reasoning, meaning if it sounds like a duck, if it flies like a duck, if it behaves like a duck, it's most likely going to be a duck. So that interaction between vision and sound and sensation is logical. And the uh, problem, however, is that it is no better than any other treatment. It treats the distress. So, even though in a study, it can, it, like in Susan's short study, it showed that it also uh, dramatically decreased the loudness, but the moment you stopped, the loudness was back. So you can't constantly keep on, on, on doing those stimulation. With the linear device, they never published the loudness um, benefit, only the distress benefit, and the distress benefit was lasting. But the problem is, if the linear device does not improve the loudness, then it becomes difficult for us as clinicians to know when we should use it. Because... Well, we can also treat the distress in many other ways. The distress in general can be treated by uh, magnetic stimulation, electrical stimulation, uh, mindfulness treatment, um, uh, CBT, uh, medi- well, that, there's many, and then it becomes difficult to to see what you should offer to a patient. So if the patient, of course, says, well, I strongly believe they should help me, that's fine. But still, you should try and and guide somebody and say well have you tried maybe a simple hearing device that might already be sufficient or have you um we can also give you a medication for two or three weeks that might benefit you or uh, we can do uh, ttcs or we can do linear and as long as we do not know which is the subgroup that benefits from these kind of bimodal stimulations um it becomes just Another hype, like we've seen many coming by. and this is some, um, some a little bit of a problem is that uh, because there is no good treatment yet, whenever something is uh, publicized um, or mediatized, then many patients want this. Um, only to realize um, that again, it works. In twenty to thirty percent of the patients, really beneficial, and twenty or thirty of the pa- twenty or thirty percent of the patients, it has a little bit of benefit, and in twenty or thirty of the patients, it doesn't do anything, which is unfortunately what we see with most of the treatments that we currently do, and that's why research is still very important because whatever we have to our uh, whatever we can provide now works in 20 30 percent of the patients
1: yeah so it's not really a meaningful improvement in that sense Uh, one one other thing that is hyped uh, a lot in uh the sort of online tinnitus communities including tinnitus talk is hearing regeneration Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of people seem to believe that would, if we can restore hearing, which by itself is a huge challenge and would be a huge breakthrough, but if we can restore hearing, then we can fix the tinnitus. And I tend to be a little bit skeptical about that. I was curious what you think.
0: Well, I think hearing improvement would be a dramatic benefit. Um, The question, however, is, as we've discussed earlier on, on the moment that the tinnitus becomes part of who you are, even improving the hearing might not benefit. Also, if hearing improvement would be the golden, the magic, uh, the holy grail or the, the magic bullet, then hearing aids should have a lot better effect than they do have now. And of course, you can say, well, the hearing aid uh, does not increase um, the, the frequencies above 8,000 hertz and they are the most important, etc., cetera, et cetera hearing uh, uh, regeneration, and there is currently trials um, going on, um, to my point of view, might be especially beneficial for preventing tinnitus to come back after you've created treatment, which of course would be very good, because let's say, even if you take psychedelics and you can detach the sound from the self, um, and you can then prevent the hearing loss, then you should have a good treatment. Maybe one, two, or three sessions of psychedelics, just like in post-traumatic stress disorder, where they combine ecstasy with uh, psychotherapy. And within three sessions, the, the post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, patients do not seem to qualify anymore according to the criteria of post-traumatic stress because the way they look at, the t- at their trauma is like as if they look at it from a from a, on a movie or it's so it's detached from the emotion. Um, if that is possible for tinnitus, that would be highly beneficial. So we're currently um, setting up a study where we will use the same thing. We will use ecstasy with, uh, with sound therapy. Now, just imagine this works, the tinnitus is gone. Then the problem is if the hearing loss is still there, it might come back after a while. And so, if you can regenerate hearing to a functional level, then that might then prevent the tinnitus from coming back. So, I do believe there is a there is a, a, a future for it, but maybe more as a prevention rather than a um, than a cure. And it will certainly not be a cure all, because if we just look at pain, chronic pain. Um, Some patients after surgery develop chronic pain. Most do not. Those who develop chronic pain um, are just like in They have specific uh, genetic profile. They have specific environmental factors that have been translated via epigenetics into uh, chronic neuroinflammation. But it's not because uh, you restore sensation that the pain disappears. So I would not hype it to the extent that it would cure everybody. Because as we've discussed before, there is at least two groups of tinnitus, one associated with hearing loss, the other one where the break does not work. Now, if your break doesn't work and you improve your hearing, it won't make a difference. So the, that being said, um, it it will be an advantage, but certainly not a cure-all.
1: Hmm. Are there any other new treatments or developments out there that you think are particularly promising?
0: Apart from the the, the psychedelic approach, uh, uh, the chronic neuroinflammation approach. Which so if we can prevent this chronic neuroinflammation from continuing, we should be able to stop the chronicity. Um, and apart from the multifocal stimulation network approach, so where you where you stimulate the network. Um, and uh, the preliminary studies of um hair cell regrowth um i'm not aware of anything else that is um that is or that could at this stage revolutionize the um the the treatment approach but even though well the four approaches i've just mentioned in itself should offer a lot of uh, hope for uh, people who suffer from tinnitus that Um, maybe not one, but a combination of different approaches might ultimately be the goal because how you treat a network is by using a combination of different approaches and this is insufficiently done. So we know, for example, when um, people got, uh, when AIDS was in the beginning, uh, was treated originally, there was only one drug, Zidovidin, and patients were benefiting from it for a while. But now with four different drugs, they basically not saying they live they live a normal life but their life expectancy is fairly normal so they're never cured but it's controlled and it's controlled by attacking the network from different sites simultaneously this is still what we have to learn in in the tinnitus field where we still to be honest, I do. I make the same problem, is that we say, well, the problem is if we do four treatments at the same time, we don't know what works. Well, that's correct. So what we do now is we do treatment A. If it doesn't work, we go to treatment B. If that doesn't work, we go to treatment C, and etc. cetera. This in itself might not be good. Just like in the AIDS treatment, the benefit is in the combination of the approaches. And that's what we should in the future go to, uh, the problem, however, is that it is more difficult to study from a scientific point of view. It's easier to do one, uh, to test only one thing. So scientifically, it's a little bit more difficult. But ultimately, for the patient, science is important, but the clinical benefit is even more important. How how they can benefit. And we might have to accept that maybe the science might be somewhat less rigorous, But that ultimately, the goal is is twofold. It's one, to understand the mechanisms better because that will allow us to develop better treatments. But on the other hand, the main goal still has to be to treat the patient.
1: Yeah, which kind of brings us back full circle to something we were talking about earlier, the need for this grand-scale project that combines lots of different approaches and with large-scale data gathering, um, etc., uh, so let's hope we can get that off the ground.
0: Yes, and I think the the, the most easy way of doing it uh, would be for a group of people to uh, sit together and um, and uh, tap into some European money or some um, uh, and uh, the Tinnitus Research in- Initiative, especially under influence of Winischle, has already um, been very successful in getting some. Um, grants european grants to uh, create an academy where young investigators uh, phd students are uh, are uh, enrolled so there is the momentum is there but it's still at the investigational approach i think we should maybe conceive of the next phase of european uh, money uh, to go to a real treatment approach where we go away from this one uh one phase then the second phase to a uh network approach with multiple different um concepts as we've um, as we've mentioned uh, before uh genotyping everybody epigenotyping everybody microbioming everybody um EGing and then just have the um the artificial intelligence help us in the determining the patterns that we know should exist, but that we are incapable with our human intelligence to um, extract from the data.
1: Mm. Do you think we could use, uh, to some extent, existing data in biobanks? Because we're working on a project together with some academic partners to sort of map uh, existing biobanks and whether they contain tinnitus data and what other data they contain, like neuroimaging and... um, lots of lots of different data points do you think that could be an approach that could work
0: yes certainly it's i think it's an intermediate approach because uh, the problem with a biobank is there is always missing data in the sense that the, the the tinnitus might for example be just the question do you have tinnitus or not it might not say is it a pure tone is it noise like is it left is it right is it um so the the biobank's are very good, and I think it's a, it's a very good first approach, but if you really want to tackle it, then you have to have more uh, specific data than the biobanks tend to have.
1: Yeah, makes sense, yeah. So Dirk, I think we we need to start uh, wrapping up. This has been just hugely educational and, and informative uh, for me. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you still want to touch on?
0: Not really. I think that we've covered uh, we've covered a lot. Um, what we um, probably have not covered is the um, the association uh, of tinnitus uh, or the link or the similarities between tinnitus and other pathologies that can help us to understand tinnitus better, um, and of course. The best known is phantom pain and phantom sound. That is obvious. But uh, maybe we should also look uh, beyond that and um, ask people how to um, how we could benefit them, which you can call crowd science or whatever it's called. So together with the Technical University in Delft, we've set up a program where uh, patients, or not even patients, people who have tinnitus, can put uh, information in a database and then using semantic artificial intelligence, we want to extract uh, what benefits them. Rather than that, the the ideas come from researchers, the idea can come from uh, the people who have tinnitus or who have conquered or benefited their tinnitus and say, look, for me, this seems to work. And if the database is big enough, then that might be a novel approach where the crowd knowledge might actually become uh, very helpful in uh, developing novel treatments. So involving involving um, people with tinnitus, um, again, creating uh, databases where you can then extract patterns from, uh, whichever pattern that may be, can help not only to elucidate further the pathophysiology, uh, find uh, other correlations with other pathologies, but also maybe find very simple remedies that we haven't really thought of uh, because we only have a hammer and everything looks like a nail.
1: Well, this brings me to a whole other topic that we are also passionate about at Tinnitus Hub and Tinnitus Talk, which is citizen science. And we we have a number of projects in that area. And I think we're also uniquely well positioned to gather data online from like large group of people. The last survey we ran last year got uh, almost 9,000 responses. So Usually when academics hear that, they're like, yay, those are the sample sizes we need. So we're always actively looking for collaborations in that area. So maybe that's another something we can connect on another time. With pleasure. Dirk, I would like to thank you so much uh, for uh, spending so much time with us today. Uh, I hope uh, it was uh, as enjoyable for you as for me. It certainly was. All right. Thank you.
0: And have... Uh a nice part of a beautiful day as it is today.